Welcome back to SETI Seminars, the bite-sized podcast brought to you by the organisers of the Ilkley Literature Festival. In this season three, we'll be discussing a range of topics, including the enduring impact of Charles Dickens, Skipton's First World War prisoner of war camp, and tackling the global climate crisis. Charles Dickens is one of the most enduring writers of all time, but why? Emily Bell is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds School of History. In this episode, she asks why it is that Dickens continues to appear, not only in adaptations, but in modern culture, 150 years after his death. What role can his works play today against a backdrop of changing attitudes to race, gender and history? Hi, I'm Dr Emily Bell and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in the School of English at the University of Leeds. I specialise in 19th century literature and culture, especially the life, works and reception of the Victorian author Charles Dickens. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk about how this popular writer, just one of many successful authors of the Victorian age, has managed to have such a powerful and lasting afterlife and how the writer shaped his own celebrity status. I'm sure you will have seen Dickens referenced in some kind of popular form recently, whether a TV, film, stage or radio adaptation, such as Armando Iannucci's recent David Copperfield film, the heist film Twist with Michael Caine, or one of the many productions of A Christmas Carol which come round every year. In the 2015 game Assassin's Creed Syndicate, you can complete quests for a Dickens non-playable character, including assassinating a James Jasper who's gone mad and who has a nephew called Edward, mirroring John Jasper and Edwin Drood from Dickens' last unfinished novel. Of course, Dickens tells you that he wants to write up the story. In Doctor Who in 2005, Dickens and the Doctor chased down blue elementals in Cardiff, leading Dickens to write a new story. From the Muppets and Horrible Histories to the man who invented Christmas film and a slate of BBC dramas, there are so many different faces to Dickens in the media. Your eyes might also glide over the name in the news from time to time, sometimes in the most surprising places. It's fascinating to do a periodic dive into what the press has decided is deserving of the adjective Dickensian. The idea of the Dickensian is plural and doesn't actually seem to need a basis in the author's life or writings. How did it get there? Not all authors become adjectives. We might describe things as Shakespearean and Kafkaesque, for example, but rarely is anything described as Brontean or Thackerayan. I'll get to that and why it matters, but first I want to take us back to the early 19th century, before even the heyday of Dickens's popularity, to give a more complete picture of what being popular and being a celebrity meant to a Victorian. The 19th century was a time of increased consumer culture and regimentation, with the Industrial Revolution kicking things into overdrive. The Industrial Revolution saw mass production on an incredible scale, meaning that while there was a push for individuality, inherited from the Romantic era before, that prized emotional authenticity and identity creation, mass-produced stuff became more readily available, and factory work started not only to destroy traditional methods of working and making things, but also to make people's work into repetitive actions, as if the people themselves were cogs in a machine. Life for the poor was very restricted, and class mobility was low. There weren't many opportunities to be individual, whether at work or as a consumer. 
Media celebrities, on the other hand, appeared as fully realised individuals, as people who could break out of the mass and live an individual, meaningful life. Celebrities show us the possibilities of how to live, and more importantly, how to feel, when feelings are something we can control and have to ourselves, while the rest of life is controlled by factors beyond us. The earliest celebrities, as we would understand them in a modern sense, of the 18th century included actors, performers and poets, people associated with public expressions of feeling. While the desire to emulate celebrities may be similar today, what a celebrity should look like has definitely changed. Before the 18th century, if anyone could be called a celebrity, though the term itself was not used, it would be military figures and royalty. Further back, we have ancient Greek and Roman heroes like Achilles or Odysseus. Of course, whether they actually lived is debatable, but they were immortalised in epic poetry like Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey, and historical accounts of heroes are the first forms of celebrity biography. These kinds of heroes were usually aristocratic, naturally handsome military men. In the 18th and 19th centuries, however, you didn't need to be born a hero. There was a chance to be a self-made celebrity for the first time. In 1841, a philosopher and essayist named Thomas Carlyle published a series of lectures on heroes, hero worship and the heroic in history. Funnily enough, for a philosopher, he finished by arguing that being a man of letters, a writer, was the new kind of heroism or celebrity. He himself happened to fit the bill quite nicely. So Carlyle says, quote, Hero gods, prophets, poets, priests are forms of heroism that belong to the old ages, make their appearance in the remotest times. Some of them have ceased to be possible long since and cannot anymore show themselves in this world. The hero as man of letters is altogether a product of these new ages, and so long as the wondrous art of writing, or of ready writing which we call printing, subsists, he may be expected to continue as one of the main forms of heroism for all future ages. He is, in various respects, a very singular phenomenon. Just as furniture and other goods could be mass-produced in factories, authors' works could be mass-produced in print. So Carlyle's idea of celebrity is particularly important for understanding Victorian celebrity culture. One of the main drivers of celebrity in this period was a change in print culture. While the printing press was invented in the 15th century, books were still expensive and not widely produced until much later. Printing and publishing became a full-blown industry at the end of the 18th century. That led to a massive growth in the number of books published and fueled the rise of newspapers, magazines and advertising in the early 19th century. At the same time, the percentage of texts published anonymously went down, though it had been the norm to do it that way before. People went wild for literary celebrities, much as they would for film celebrities in the early 20th century. There had never been anything like it before. As more and more named authors jostled for public notice, a personality overload set in. Readers and writers started to feel alienated. In this new mass market for books, they could no longer know each other. The audience became a faceless crowd, while the author, the celebrity, risked being a distant and impersonal figure. The Victorian period also saw mass migration to cities like London, where the idea of a crowd really started to mean something. Previously, populations had been much smaller, even in urban areas, but the city crowd was growing. 
writers and readers started to feel like estranged producers and consumers in the marketplace, both figuratively and literally. Celebrity culture emerged to solve, or at least to mitigate, both of those problems. In response to personality overload, it turned the celebrity's name into a brand. Lord Byron is one of the key examples of this. He lived from 1788 to 1824 and is still an example of an aristocratic celebrity, but he's better known for his bad behaviour than his heroic deeds. For example, when the European magazine received a quote, new volume of poetry bearing the noble name of Byron as its passport to celebrity, it knew that the noble name of the infamously mad, bad and dangerous to know poet Lord Byron guaranteed certain marketable qualities and connotations. In response to the feeling of alienation, celebrity culture created a kind of intimacy. The trick was not to let the poems seem like industrial productions competing for attention in a crowded market. Instead, Lord Byron fostered the impression that his poems could only be understood fully by referring to their author's personality, and that reading them was entering a kind of intimate relationship with him. They are not felt as declarations published to the world, wrote one reviewer, but almost as secrets whispered to chosen ears. I like to call this the Taylor Swift effect, because we can so clearly see this very careful training of an audience in how modern celebrities like Swift encourage us to see and dissect the links between their lives and their music. Creating a sense of intimacy in thousands of people, what we call a parasocial relationship now, brings problems, as I'm sure modern celebrities would tell you, and it always has. After the Bronte sisters died, for example, the tiny town of Haworth in Yorkshire, where they had lived, was swamped with some of the first ever tourists, starting an industry that is still going today. Emily Bronte, author of Wuthering Heights, supposedly died on a couch in the parsonage she'd lived in with her sisters and father, and as she died, it was said, a comb she was using fell to the ground. So, after her death, tourists could buy copies of the comb she'd been holding. Later in the century, the poet laureate Alfred Tennyson, favourite poet of Queen Victoria, had tourists breaking into his garden and stealing branches from his trees while he hid inside. Celebrity culture gives people a sense of ownership. People think that they know you and have a right to you. So how does the story of celebrity identity and intimacy relate to Dickens? Well, Dickens was one of the first literary celebrities. He lived from 1812 to 1870, so he overlapped with Byron, the Brontes and Tennyson, but his fame was bigger than any of them. For Dickens, celebrity meant that he could barely function normally on his first trip to America in 1842 at the age of 30, as he was crowded by fans, inundated with invitations, and instantly recognised. Dickens had a famously personal relationship with the public. Many of his novels were published in serial form, a relatively new form in the 19th century, which meant that there were cheap editions available, and his works could be read by more than just the wealthiest in society. He even named his first literary journal, in which he published some of his novels and journalism, as well as the work of other writers, Household Words, to emphasise that he was a domestic, homely friend to his readers. His books were often read aloud to families, making him part of their routine at home. Books like A Christmas Carol established him as the right sort of author with the right sort of values, guaranteeing him a place in people's homes with a focus on morality and redemption in his works. Later in his career, he performed public readings, touring the UK and America to read his own works to audiences. Unlike Byron, however, he tried to keep details of his life mostly secret. 
He had to, to maintain this sense of morality. His intimacy with the public was shown through the characters from his books rather than his own life. The characters represented people you would meet on the street on any given day, making him a man of the people. These people might be criminals, prostitutes, lawyers, police inspectors, office clerks and schoolboys, as well as higher class lords and ladies. People wanted to know more about Dickens's life, though. Just as today we have unauthorised celebrity biographies, biographies of Dickens appeared that essentially made things up. One pretended he got all of his ideas by following a policeman around near the beginning of his career, for example, while others guessed entirely wrongly that he'd had a pretty respectable upbringing, appropriate to the kind of gentleman he was seen to be later in life. But what's key is that they always drew from his fiction in writing about his life to fill in the gaps. It was only after his death that specific details about his childhood became known. He had told just one single friend about his history, supposedly never even telling his wife or children. Charles Dickens, the respectable middle-class author, had actually worked in a factory as a child. Very briefly. There's some debate about how long it was for, but probably for no more than a year. Nevertheless, this didn't fit with the impression he'd given of himself, and shook up his posthumous celebrity reputation. This was the second time his reputation had been threatened. The first time was when he separated from his wife in the late 1850s after beginning an affair with a teenage actress when he was in his 40s. While the Victorians could get divorced, it involved a public trial to prove adultery, and this didn't happen. Part of Dickens wanting to keep his life private was avoiding a big public scandal. While the identity of his mistress, Ellen Ternan, was mostly unknown in the UK, Dickens forcing his wife to move out and abandon her children didn't fit very well with his emphasis on being the domestic friend of all of his readers. The biography that gave us what we now know about Dickens's childhood, published within a couple of years of his death, was the first to reveal that Dickens had worked in Warren's blacking factory, sticking labels to bottles of boot blacking. It was written by a man named John Forster, Dickens's lifelong friend. Those troubled early years became the focal point for reviewers and literary critics, who began to read Dickens' fictional orphans and troubled childhood figures as manifestations of his own fears about abandonment, money and loss of class status, and his observations about the working class as rooted in his own life. Dickens becomes an Oliver Twist figure himself in this biography. He's the perfect self-made hero for the Victorian age in many ways. In Dickens' own words, quoted by his friend, No words can express the secret agony of my soul as I sunk into this companionship, compared these everyday associates with those of my happier childhood, and felt my early hopes of growing up to be a learned and distinguished man crushed in my breast. The deep remembrance of the sense I had of being utterly neglected and hopeless, of the shame I felt in my position, of the misery it was to my young heart to believe that day by day what I had learned and thought and delighted in and raised my fancy and my emulation up by was passing away from me, never to be brought back any more, cannot be written. My whole nature was so penetrated with the grief and humiliation of such considerations that even now, famous and caressed and happy, I often forget in my dreams that I have a dear wife and children, even that I am a man, and wander desolately back to that time of my life. So this is Dickens as a very successful man in his thirties, showing that celebrity is empty. He can never separate his life from that moment, no matter how successful. 
but it's also Dickens almost as a Dickens character himself. And this biography went a long way to making that association with Dickens, both as a man and as a writer, one about images like the poor orphan boy in London, in spite of Dickens's lifelong desire to keep that part of his life private. So after Dickens' death in 1870, these two things dovetail. Dickens, the domestic friend, read aloud in people's homes and providing moral lessons through recognisable characters, and Dickens himself as a traumatised child who makes good. So now let's jump forward in time. The common associations we have with Dickens now are quite strong. We've got Christmas, orphans, foggy London, criminals like Fagin. Another way of thinking about it is in terms of what we mean by saying something is Dickensian. The term Dickensian started to be used in the 1880s, a decade after the author's death. It began to pick up momentum in the early 1900s and it peaked in the early 1940s. Interestingly, Dickens was used a lot during wartime. There were initiatives to send Dickens novels to soldiers on the front lines, for example, connecting reading of Dickens with Englishness and patriotism. Now, if I were to talk about Dickensian London, I imagine that you would conjure at least some overlapping ideas, perhaps coloured by fog everywhere, as in Bleak House, peopled with orphans like Oliver Twist and David Copperfield, with workhouses, high levels of poverty, and so on. Dickensian London is a place for Dickens' characters, but also for the author himself to live. Dickensian London is a way of imagining Victorian London. In the same way, a Dickensian child like Oliver or David might share characteristics with Dickens himself as a child. The border between Dickens's life and his characters is blurred in the term Dickensian, and the border between Dickensian and Victorian is blurred too. In fact, friends of Dickens had started writing about him as representative of the whole Victorian period, less than a month after his death, and well before the end of the actual Victorian period. And the revelation of his journey from factory boy to celebrity cemented this as a story that could represent an epoch. All of these ideas are starting to blend into one. But it's also one huge cultural assumption that we all know what that word Dickensian means now, and it's taken for granted by newspapers on an almost daily basis. The poet W.H. Auden in 1948 suggested that, quote, Sometimes in real life one meets a character and thinks... This man comes straight out of Shakespeare or Dickens, but nobody ever met a Kafka character. On the other hand, one can have experiences which one recognises as Kafka-esque, while one would never call an experience of one's own Dickensian or Shakespearean. Well, is this true? Was it ever true? Is the argument that we wouldn't describe our own experience in those terms, but we might use the word to describe the lives of others? It's a broad claim to make in passing, but it's echoed in many instances of the Dickensian in the public consciousness, which now more than ever is filled with outrage at the possibility of living Dickensian lives, by which they really mean the worst of what we associate with Victorian. These kind of meanings pick up on the implications of Auden rather than the argument. Though many of them focus exactly on this question of Dickensian experience, they do so to highlight that it's something unimaginable, something which should not be. If we ever are living Dickensian experiences, it means there's something wrong. We're going backwards. It's no longer the factory boy to celebrity dream, but something like the reverse. Recent examples range from the sublime to the ridiculous and back again. The owners of Plymouth Albion Rugby Union Football Club derided a points deduction as Dickensian authoritarian arrogance. 
The third instalment of the Bill and Ted franchise has a Dickensian plot, which is apparently a piss take on Dickens of going back into your life and finding that each iteration of your life was even worse than the previous. COVID existence during the COVID-19 pandemic is described as having a Dickensian feel all right, from increasing social inequality across the globe to nefarious characters in positions of power. Australian universities face Dickensian conditions in the future if international students aren't able to come to the country due to ongoing lockdown restrictions and pandemic fears, and the 60 corpses a year dragged from the depths of the Thames are described as positively Dickensian. The underlying assumption is that, in the spirit, if not the letter, of Auden's idea, Dickensian experience shouldn't exist in an ideal world. Dickens himself is trapped by his own adjective in the before state of the kinds of calls he made in his fiction for social reform, so we're left with the un- or anti-Dickensian referring to a vague something of which Dickens might be more likely to approve. Better conditions in prisons, better schools, improved systems of fairness. There's a feeling of potential and also an air of risk. The Australian anti-Dickensian university is one that embraces and benefits from international students. The anti-Dickensian river doesn't take life. Dickensian has come to mean, like the young Charles's early experiences in the factory, degradation, poverty and something to be avoided. We don't really see Dickensian characters anymore, so this is what we're left with. What interests me is that all of this name-calling boils down to a fear about emulation, present even in the, the kind of silly Bill and Ted example, which offers a world in which you might try to learn from your past, Scrooge-like, but ultimately make the present and the future worse, not better. None of them invoke Dickens or his works literally. None of them refer, as Auden suggests they should, to characters in specific or even general terms. A return to some of the earliest uses of Dickensian and the initial kinds of fluctuations, which went from Dickens-ish and Dickens-esque to Dickensian, reveal similar concerns about imitation, though directed another way. Many of these early instances are reviews of novels written by writers who either worked with Dickens or admired him from afar. In an unsigned review of a novel called London's Heart by the writer Benjamin Fargen, for example, Fargen is criticised for having characters who are, quote, Dickens-ish oddities in a book that has attempted too much in its endeavour to use his undoubted power as a novelist to expose and castigate evils. Even Dickens must have feared to live up to his own adjectives, with newspapers noting in 1859, with some relief, in response to A Tale of Two Cities, that Dickens's style still contains bits of Dickensian humour equal to the great master's happiest efforts. A pointed letter to the editor in 1862 moaned about the trick of imitating here and there in the course of an article the peculiar and, to my taste, ridiculous style of Dickens, in their words. So Dickensian really appears to have been coined as a way of describing similarities with Dickens's work and style whether in reviews of the author's later novels and short stories, or in the works of younger authors influenced by him. It also seems to have taken on the characteristic of the odd, unusual or exaggerated, a sort of pastiche or parody of Dickens's style and characters. Today, the slippage of the Victorian and the Dickensian and the connotations of backwardness, unfairness, squalor and poverty that have joined these words again find us drawing a line back to Dickens's works in a search for moments of similarity, or as a way of making distinction, though the specifics of style and character are less often alluded to. But why did Dickensian ultimately become the chosen adjective? 
So as I mentioned, variations included Dickens-esque, Dickens-esque and Dickens-ish, and these all appear as late as the 1880s, and the uses of these terms are similarly varied. Why Dickensian ultimately became the chosen adjective is difficult to pin down, but it might have something to do with the specificity of the word. It's more defining than the weaker sentiments of Dickens-ish or Dickens-esque, but paradoxically no more static or fixed in meaning. The afterlife of Dickens captured by the word Dickensian has this complex range of associations with the actual man, the works, the reception, social change, the Victorian period, London, Christmas, and so on. Dickens in the world of 2020 and 2021 has also found himself in new contexts, particularly in terms of social change. In 2020, Amy Davidson Sorkin wrote a powerful piece on social distancing in Bleak House and how it might resonate today. There's also been a call to undisciplined Victorian studies from Ronjani Chatterjee, Alicia Morales-Christoph and Amy R. Wong, asking us to push back against the idea that the books we know as the classics, like Dickens, represent a universal human experience, which is what the word Dickensian asks us to agree to implicitly, that we universally know what it means and that it means the same thing for all of us. The idea that literary classics represent a universal human experience and the inherent racism in that cultural idea is a defining feature of how the word Dickensian is used today, and if Auden's suggestion shows anything, it might be that this elitist view of Victorian fiction has only become more entrenched over time. If Auden wouldn't have described an experience as Dickensian, the media today can't seem to help themselves. The earliest examples after Dickens' death drew smaller parallels between authors and styles, and Auden notes specific Dickensian character types, but Anglophone media today insists that the Dickensian can be universally understood. And yet the more pressure we put on the word, the more its meaning eludes us, because how exactly can a rugby union points deduction be Dickensian in any meaningful sense? The word offers itself as a prime example of how dangerously easy it is to perpetuate myths of universal experience. A modern reader doesn't actually need Dickens as a celebrity conduit for feelings, morality and individuality anymore. In spite of the failure to create a concrete idea of the Dickensian, as the examples show, we can see how a history of Dickens as celebrity, war icon and so on, influences the way we think about the Dickensian today, and they show the success of Dickens as a celebrity is that he has made himself so adaptable. The reasons for Dickens' unique popularity have been much discussed. There are few authors who have maintained such a steady presence in the mind of the reading public. In this, Dickens is second only to Shakespeare. Jane Austen might come next, and there are passionate Austen fans much as there are Dickens ones, particularly in groups doing things like dressing up as Austen or Dickens characters. But why is Dickens so eternally interesting? Many arguments have been made about his humour, his importance in representing and shaping attitudes to social issues of his day, and the resonance of his characters, although this too has changed over time. A discussion of Dickens's best novel in 1904, for example, excluded not only David Copperfield, but also the Pickwick Papers, to avoid limiting the scope of the discussion, assuming that everybody would choose these two novels. Well, from my experience, you'd be quite hard-pressed to find a reader that would place Pickwick so far above the rest today. But it's a stubborn undercurrent of popular interest, which has changed its focus, that makes Dickens stand out. Even when critical opinion is uncertain of him, as it was really until the 1970s, he's not there to be rediscovered. He's ever-present. 
and this constant presence means that nostalgia for the Dickensian remains at both individual level and the level of society. For some, he is representative of a sort of golden age of fiction, or a paragon of Victorian values, but he's also a writer that we, in a UK, an Anglophone world at least, have read as children, whom our parents and grandparents read, whose name we have lived with in the media in some form for generations, precisely because he cultivated an image of himself as a family friend and a fighter for social justice, no matter how much we might agree or disagree with that image of him now. In the 21st century, the Dickens industry is still in full flow. The 200th anniversary of Dickens's birth in 2012 was characterised by an explosion of new works and criticism that sought particularly to try to understand what Dickens means to the modern world in a truly global sense. This isn't a trivial question. Literary and historical studies are increasingly facing questions about their value in the modern world and also being asked to tackle head-on the implications of the colonial and imperial heritage that has shaped the very idea of the literary classics and the canon, and what exactly the museums and institutions that are engaged in preserving this literary heritage should be doing. To answer the question of what it means to read Dickens today is to consider how we continue to relate to that past and how we might use it to write a more inclusive literary future. In this light, we can and should reevaluate Dickens's work for social reform, but also his racial politics and his problematic portrayals of women, probing what Dickensian really meant for the author, for the Victorians, and what cultural power it should and does hold for us today. Thank you for joining this SETI seminar. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics in the series, then reading lists are available in the episode description of your podcast app. Or you can check out our website, which is ilkleylipfest.org.uk. Until next time, don't forget to like, rate and subscribe.